I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Dean Kuypers. Mr. Kuypers is an editor at the Los Angeles Times. As a former deputy editor at LA City Beat, he wrote about the evictions at the South Central Farm on several occasions. He's the author of the 2006 book, Burning Rainbow Farm, which won a Michigan Notable Book Award, and of the upcoming book, Operation Bite Back, about echo radical Rod Coronado and terrorism charges in the environmental community, which comes out from Bloomsbury in July. He lives in Los Angeles. Please welcome Mr. Dean Kuypers. Thank you, thank you. It's my privilege to read little bios about these people with me here. Um, Daryl Hannah has been an actress for over 20 years and was arrested at the South Central Farms. We'll talk a little bit about that. And makes documentaries and has a video blog, a website called dhlovelife.com. Welcome. And Scott Hamilton Kennedy, the uh, director of this uh, production. His debut documentary, uh, documentary, OT, Our Town, was an official selection and won awards at some of the top film festivals in the world. In its theatrical release, OT garnered rave reviews, was selected as one of the best of lists, including, including uh, Kenny Turan of the LA Times, and was nominated for best documentary by the IFP Independent Spirit Awards. Currently, Scott is developing a narrative adaptation of O.T. Our Town, his feature script Up River, an urban adventure movie set on the Los Angeles River, went through the highly competitive Fine Directors Lab. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Can I just start by thank, thank, thank you guys for uh, coming out. It's really wonderful to see a full house on a off and on again rainy uh, rainy night here in Los Angeles, not just coming to see an independent film, but an independent documentary. So it means a lot. Thank you very much for coming out. Absolutely. Um, Scott, let's start. Uh, are you from Los Angeles? Or where, in, uh, do you have any, um, I want to get to what, do you have any personal connection to this <laughs> whole, uh, the South Central Farm and the whole struggle there? Oh, well, I guess that's a twofold question. No, I didn't grow up here in Los Angeles. Uh, I grew up in Berkeley, California and did kind of the tri triangle of Berkeley, California, New York City, and then uh, Los Angeles. And um, the, the Garden is my second documentary in LA, OT, as you mentioned, and I'm in post-production on another one called Fame High about a performing arts high school here. And it's through these documentaries that I've been able to fall in love with LA kind of to a, to, to a different degree. So in terms of a personal connection, um, I may not begin by having a personal connection by, by finding these subjects and places like the garden. Um, I don't just get a personal connection to the place, I also get a personal connection to the people. And again, it makes me fall in love with uh, the uniqueness of LA that sometimes isn't so easy to find. Mm. Did, um, when did you first start, when did you sort of, I'm, I'm curious because I know something of the, the story of what happened at the South Central Farms. I'm curious sure. as to when you sort of jumped in and decided this was the subject for you. Was it when they first, it basically starts kind of right when they get the eviction. It was a little while, uh, that was a little movie magic. It was a little while after the first, uh, the first eviction. Um, my good friend and co-producer Dominic Derringer saw the uh, PBS piece that you see early in the film with Val Savala of, uh, and Life and Times, and they did like a 60 Minutes type magazine portrait of the situation there. 
And he saw that and called me and said, we'd been looking to do a project together, and he said, I think we found something. And he sent, I was actually out of town, and he sent me the transcript. And even in the transcript reading it, there was just so much story there. The largest community garden in the country, born out of the riots, an incredible success after 12 years, feeding over 360 families, not even including the outside community. And there was this backroom deal, and it seemed that it was uh, a very shady backroom deal where the price was a quarter or a third of the price of the property. They never told the farmers. And the best thing yet is the farmers weren't leaving. The farmers said, this doesn't sound right, and we want to get some answers. So as a storyteller, as a documentary filmmaker, you look for stories that have those elements. And there were so many elements there that I literally got off the plane back into Los Angeles, drove to the farm on a Tuesday, and we started shooting the next day. Wow. The clock was ticking. So this was the middle of February of 2004, and the, oh, right, the, okay. the February 29th eviction date was, was looming. Right, so. right. So it was already in the works, and you sort of jumped in right as it was. Right. We were worried that the farm could have ended, you know, two weeks from then, so we were right. trying to capture everything we could. Right. Little did we know it would go on for, you know, two and a half more Yeah, that was years. A, the follow-up to that is sort of what were your expectations of that? You were going to make a movie sort of about these people that were farming there, which is a great subject, you know. Uh, could easily have spotlighted any number of those people and made an interesting film about that, but sure. Well, because I came in in the midst of the in the midst of the conflict, it the story kind of presented itself to me. Obviously, there's a million different ways you could you could go about making the film, but it presented itself to me as: Are they going to save the farm? You know, it's that simple. And then there's all these elements underneath it, and obviously many many twists and turns through that. Um, you know, and. Are they going to save the farm? Can they save the farm? Do they deserve to save the farm? Other people are saying other things should go on here. And those are, you know, I'm sure we have other filmmakers and writers in, in, in the house that you just can really latch on to is, you know, that's the core of the story. But then there's all these other elements that I discovered through the shooting process and even a lot in the editing process. Mm. Now, somewhere right in the, the middle of... of the year 2004, as yeah. this is all going on, yeah. and they passed the first eviction, they started di digging, or maybe it was just before the first eviction, no, it was the February 29th, they started digging for all these documents, right? Right. And suddenly, did you reach a point where suddenly you realized you had like a major city hall corruption scandal in the middle of your film? <laughs> um, major is funny. I mean, you kind of go, go in fits and starts. When they found, when they found Dan Stormer, um, when they found Dan Stormer, uh, it really felt like not only did the story, you knew the story was going to go to another level, but it was like, oh my God, they, they might get justice. We might actually get answers. Uh, and, um, and then when I did, you know, the interview with Chan Perry and the interview with Juanita Tate, it goes deeper. But, you know, I didn't see the, the deposition of Ralph Horowitz until deep into the editing process. So, you know, you knew those elements were out there, but you didn't know if you were going to get them. You know, I didn't want to do voiceover. I didn't want to do narration. I wanted it to be told through the actions of, of the people and through the voices of the people that were living it. So, um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it really isn't... Sometimes you don't know what you're making until you show it to, to, to an audience, you know, because you're, so, you're so very close to it. And before I forget, there might be... Uh, Erica's passing around a sign-in sheet for, uh, for the... Uh, for our, our sign-in sheet for thegardenmovie.com. So if you guys want to join our, our, our uh, sign-in sheet, it's out there. Independent film, you got to keep selling it, people. You know what I'm saying? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and and Daryl, uh, how did you, were you first contacted about the, the farm, and, and why did you take a personal interest in it? Um, 
I first uh, I first heard about the farm from Julia Butterfly Hill, and she was up in San Francisco, and she called me and said, um, "This is urgent." Uh, it was uh, the last eviction date, I guess. It was right, r- right before the last eviction eviction date a few weeks and she said you know we need help can you go down there and right. lend them some support and I had just sort of started my weekly video blog on sustainable solutions so yeah. I went down, down there to film a video blog on the piece because <laughs> I get a, sometimes a you know, million and a half hits sometimes in wow. a day on my website wow. and sometimes less but that's yeah. you know it can go up to that so I was like well that's a good way to try to get tell the, the story out. so I went down there and I was blown away by not only the people that I met, but what they were doing and all of the implications and ramifications of what they were doing in terms of livable cities, in terms of creating habitat for biodiversity, sequestering greenhouse gases, making food affordable and available to the whole community. I mean, just every single aspect of that place was a a brilliant inspiration and the people I fell in love with immediately and then I was just like uh, okay tell me what you want me to do <laughs> <laughs> and so as soon as the encamp you know the encampment started went b- right before the eviction date I just moved in and I never left and so I was there for I guess about three three and a half weeks or yeah something I think it was pretty close to a month we got evicted and at some at some point in those three and a half weeks you were up the tree not really till the end because I have vertigo. So, <laughs> um, and I and we use the tree sort of as a lookout post, really, to um, to kind of keep our eye on what the sheriff's activities were because you know they, every single day from the time we got the eviction notice, there was there was you know could have we could have been evicted. Uh, I'll keep looking over there because Tezo's over there. We, yeah, can we t- just a quick aside, everybody? We're very happy yeah, to have Tezo Somok in the house. Yeah. <laughs> Tezza, do you have a mic? No, okay. We'll take some questions with Tezza later on, too. So. But uh, anyway, so every day, I mean, really, the, the whole time we were at the farm, you know, every 15 minutes there's trains going and helicopters, and uh, so there's not really any, any sleep, but we use, the, we use the tree as sort of a lookout tower mm-hmm. to see, you know, what kind of sheriff's activity and stuff there was out, because the farm was basically on lockdown once we actually got the eviction notice, because we were trying to raise the money to, to buy the farm, mm-hmm. which the farmers did. They raised the money to mm-hmm. buy the farm, and then obviously you, you see. I, w- I wanted to ask a little bit, um, Scott, about the um, because it's so germane to the whole film. It's sort of the the core question that kind of cycles through the film is about the relationship between Jan Perry and Juanita Tate and this deal. Sure. Um, uh, what's not clear in the movie is, is that Juanita Tate passes away in the middle of this whole thing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So Juanita Tate uh, died of a stroke in July of 2004. Right. So, but then all these things are coming to the surface. The LA Times is writing some stories. Um, Dan Moraine, I think, was doing those um, about that uh, the city actually did find that there was some money missing there, and they actually sure. went and took back some of the money from that uh, Slauson and Main soccer field that you see in the movie, right. and actually asked uh, the Tates for some of the the money back that they personally had paid themselves had to be repaid. So, wondering, did she ever answer to any of that, or was it too early? No, neither of them answered. Uh, I mean, I say neither. Not Miss Tate nor her son uh, would answer to me on those to me on those points. Uh, so, 
the, the irony of the, of the financial situation, especially as from a documentary filmmaker trying to raise money to, to make a film and having a very difficult time, is they figured out a way to double dip. They figured out a way to get money from the city and the state for the same, for the same, oh, right. uh, for the same uh, soccer field. Right. which is evil and ingenious at the same time, uh, depending on how you look at it. So, uh, yeah, we, that came up, that came into the story um, as it happened when it was in the L.A. Times. Tezza was telling, telling me about it as well. But no, she, uh, she, never, she never copped to that. And I, and I don't think, I don't think uh, Mr. Williams would, would, would cop to it either. They always dodged it. So there's, right, there's the two brothers, Mark Williams and the Reverend Eugene Williams. That's right. right. So, that, so as far as we know, that has never really been dealt with. I've so Tezza, have you anything. got an answer? I've been trying to get another answer on that. Please, tell us. Tezza Somok, everyone. Say hello. Hello. So one of the things that uh, we, we've been fighting with, um, with some development, and one of the things we did was to ask the, uh, the state controller... And they basically gave us a report that we have, basically says they never paid the money back. Uh -huh. And then I don't know why they were not forced to pay the money back because the original, uh, uh, the, the original study that had done that they, they needed to return the money, it wasn't returned and basically, so, so basically they, they never returned the money. <laughs> and uh, I, I have that right, they did the whole uh, uh, audit trail and the, they, they, they were asked for the money and we basically felt that uh, they had gotten political help not to be not to have to have to pay it back. Let me That's ask one. Let me ask one little follow-up for you there, Tezo, um, uh, because there's something that happened here. There were developments that happened actually after the film was done. And maybe Scott, first to you, is that this? There was some question there about that the warehouse that was being built there was being um, was being built for uh, Forever 21, the clothing manufacturer, and sure. there was a, some some dealing going on around there. Some uh, very large campaign contributions that were made to Viragosa and Jan Perry. Yeah, since the time of the film, sorry to interrupt you, but no, uh, since ahead. the time of the, the of locking picture on the film, uh, Mr. Horowitz has been trying to build a warehouse there for for uh, the organization Forever Twenty One, the clothing store, which already has its own issues with sweatshops. It is represented very well in the wonderful film called Made in L.A. If you haven't had a chance to see that, and um, to make. The ironies keep going. Uh, one is that Mr. Horowitz wanted to build the warehouse in the shape of a lowercase h. You can kind of do whatever you want with that. I don't even know where to start. Um, and then... Uh, Call he, it hubris. Called hubris, thank you. H for hubris, thank you, yes. Um, good one. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, and he was trying to put it through without, a, without an environmental impact report, and that's where the farmers came in again. And they fought, and they won last summer, and he agreed to do an environmental impact report, which is a two-fold victory, obviously, to un understand how much damage these diesel trucks could have and other things could have on that neighborhood, but also gives you more time to continue the fight to try and get the property back. And, um, and then finally, the article that you're referring to, and the Forever 21 also gave upwards of a million and a half dollars to Viragosa's uh, campaign and just to, to end the irony for him to plant a million trees in Los Angeles. So, did that leave anything out? Right. Well, basically yeah. what, I, what I wanted to uh, add was the original plans that were submitted to the city by Horowitz was he was originally going to do a cold storage there, but uh, that fell through. In, during the negotiations with uh, Larry Frank, who was the deputy mayor for Viragosa, is for me... What forced us into the encampment was the fact that we knew all along that they were basically 
politically pawing, as that's what we call when the politicians are kind of pawing you around. And we knew that we had to step it up. And in those discussions, basically Larry Frank let out the cat that, you know, that, that Forever 21 was interested in that site. And that was at the same time that Viragosa got the first uh, $1 million commitments from the uh, owners of Forever 21. And that was at the same time that we're doing the, uh, the Million Tree campaign. And so for me, that was, you know, it didn't click till you know, they announced that Forever 21 was going to put the warehouse there. And they go, that's when we were talking in discussions with uh, Davis Hannister with the LA Times. And he, you know, between his, David's work and then all of the research that I had done, we kind of shared documents back and forth and we added up all the math and he said, yeah, that's a lot of money, $1.3 million. You know? mm. There's, um, speaking of Larry Frank, there's a, uh, I was wondering if there was some bad blood there between him and Jan Perry because there's a remarkable moment that you never ever see as a filmmaker or as a reporter where he basically just slams her by saying, you know, she doesn't care about these people, they're never going to elect her. And that's a, a kind of a remarkable thing to hear one politician in an administration say about another politician that they have to work with every day. That was an amazing, yeah, that was an incredible moment. You can see the exhaustion in his eyes. And in another time in his life, Larry would have been there with the farmers, you know. I and mean, he came down. And he ca oh, no, he came down. But, I mean, he was, he was a community activist. He would have been one of the people there trying to stop this. As, I mean, Fieragosa had done in his life. He obviously didn't show up this time, but he has done in his life. Um, go ahead. What, what I think is fascinating is... Um, the power dynamics that were that were there's a, there was an internal power struggle between Viragosa and Jam Perry and basically Jam Perry if you don't understand downtown <coughs> politics and correct me if I'm wrong Matt Dean but the ninth district is the richest uh, uh, district and simultaneously the poorest right so you have all the real estate, you know, Eli Broad and all, a lot of those people basically were people who were, you know, moving Jam Perry. And simultaneously, you know, you have the poorest, you have South Central, you have, you know, Vern, you know, the area next to where we were at, which was the fifth lowest income uh, uh, area in the city. And so there was a humongous power play going on. And, and we basically were basically the pawn between these two politicians and really I think the, the crux of the moment was when Vera Gosa basically failed to, to throw Jam Perry under the train and that's basically the moment that you see that you know he basically had to choose whether to risk uh, you know saving this place or to to kind of in a sense risk his own political uh, you know gut you know. Mm -hmm. I'm sure glad I'm not yeah. a politician. I would not do well at it. It's, uh, it's, that's, it's, a crap, it's a crappy job. And as much as, as I'm frustrated with Jan Perry and Juanita Tate and Mr. Horowitz in, in, this, in this story, it, through the editing process especially, it really became a story about how hard it is to maintain that line. Yeah. You know, I don't think Jan Perry became a politician to do bad things. Obviously, we see Juanita Tate started off stopping the incinerator. She didn't try to do bad things. But it's how hard it is to, for us to maintain that not line and not get sidetracked by greed and self-interest and race and all these other things that can take us off that tack. Right. So. And, uh, and Very generous of you. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not a saint. Okay. You know what I mean? I'm not a saint. I'm frustrated with, I'm frustrated with the decisions that they made. But I hope we, if we don't look at how that came to be, you know, it's no, like you're, you're destined to, you know, you're destined to repeat it. One of the things I've been so happy about 
hearing you know, Mr. Obama speak to us like adults and say, this is going to be difficult. Mm. It's going to take time. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to need you to help me carry water. And that's okay. We're adults. Mm. We're going to try. I hope we're going to all try and, and carry some of that water. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about this? Um, uh, all of you can speak to this maybe. Um, what about this moment here when um, Mr. Horowitz uh, says that he won't, refuses to sell the land, and he uses as his excuse that there was some anti, he told me this too, that there sure. were some anti-Semitic remarks made that really upset him, and that uh, he, he does, now he says, I don't care who these people are. Like you, this, well, first of all, where did you get that bit of tape of him saying, I don't that's care if they had $100 million, is that you interviewing him? No, or? that's him speaking, to, uh, that's be him speaking to the news on the day of the demolition. You can no. hear him, you can hear the news playing in the background of, of his interview. So he's watching the TV oh, right. and speaking on the phone to, uh, to, to, to the news. Um, well, just to, first of all, I think it was a smokescreen. I hate talking about discounting any sort of... Uh, racial situation and, and, and saying that it was a smokescreen. But in my, in my gut and what I witnessed over the course of four years being involved in this story, I never saw any anti-Semitism. The, the Jewish Journal of Los Angeles did a study on the situation and found no evidence of anti-Semitism from the farmers. The, the, the part that really strikes me now, if I can just go on a tangent, when, when he says those clothing, clothing, closing lines now is when he says that why is everybody saying they're owed and nobody's obligated, right? And he's trying to make this offhand remark that these, you know, the farmers weren't grateful enough. And the fact mm -hmm. is that they actually did this, aside from the, the city allowing them to, do, to, to use this property, they did it completely on their own. It wasn't like the city said, yes, we're going to start this garden as a form of healing, and here's $10 million, and here's right. seeds, and here's all these experts. No, this was a piece of crap property that was sitting there, the city didn't know what to do with. This, it was still a great decision to allow it to happen, but they made it happen. They made it happen. And now, in 2008 and 2009, to hear him say, make that statement, I don't know what's going on with him, but I have a, have a feeling that there are bailouts going on out there right now, and I have a feeling his hand might be out right now. And, it, and it's very ironic to hear him make those statements, and it's like, well, what, what is it now, sir? What is it now when, when all of us need some help, you know? So, sorry. just hurts me when I hear that. I think, I think for, for us, it was, it, was a, it was a game of poker, and it was a game of poker all along. And it was the, the whole idea was, and my, my feeling from, that I got from Larry Frank was, well, and he says it in the movies, like, you know, we've been down with you guys before, because every time they would, you know, Viragosa was supposed to raise $5 million, and he backed off, and then we hit him hard at the, uh, the National Latino um, conference that he was with La Raza, uh, we hit him hard at that one, as you saw in the movie, mm -hmm. and he was just, he was livid because we hit him really hard because he failed to raise $5 million he had promised the Annenberg Foundation. Now, originally, uh, Lauren had put up all the money for the, uh, for the, uh, Tom, the land. Tom, who Lauren is. Uh, Lauren Bond is uh, the representative of the Annenberg Foundation, and um, Basically, what she wanted to see was a commitment from the politicians. She was, you know, she wanted to see a 50-50 uh, commitment. And obviously, you know, now you hear about these Quimby funds. There's like $137 million that they collect from developers to create open green spaces in the community. All that money, as Laura Chicks has put it out, has been sitting there, and that was, that was money that Viragosa had access to. There was mm. never, the issue was never about whether there was money. It was really a, a pure... Uh, battle for for uh, power, you know, the politicians did not want to give Lauren any hedge 
on her gaining any kind of political power in the city. I mean, she has some really interesting ideas that she's been, you know, trying to do across different areas in the community, and they basically have been fighting her tooth and nail. I mean, she did the cornfields, and then we came out of that whole, uh, uh, all of the events that happened out of the cornfield. And then at the end, the, the whole game was, well, we're going to put the bar so high that there's absolutely no way that these farmers are going to meet it. And, and what that does is it allows me to wash my hands and say, hey, you know, we tried. We tried, we tried. We put right. something tried. on the table. Right. We put something on the table. Yeah. And guess what happens? We oh. raise the money. Now, so what do you do now? <laughs> right? The, 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 it's, a, it's a call, right? So you have to basically come up with a story to say, well, shoot, we, we, we really didn't mean it because... You know, that was really the, the line there. I mean, really, it's, that's, that's what it was for us. It's like, hey, we were playing poker, and we called it, and we came through, and now you got to deliver. And they did not want to deliver. And walked away from the table. There was and even a contingent of rabbis who went to speak absolutely. with yeah. Mr. Horowitz and tried to Stanley Scheinbaum, him, you know, yeah. went and talked to, uh, to Horowitz, and he basically said the same line. You know, these, these people seem to think they deserve something, even though he got an $8 million subsidy. Right. We weren't entitled to that. You know, only he was entitled to that. We're going to open up to... Yeah, sorry. Let's do that now. Yeah. Questions from the audience? Um, my name is Marcy, and I'd like you to... Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the cornfields? Because uh, I went down there, and it was an event in L.A., and then, um, because you said that it was like Annenberg, if you could just flush out that a little bit for us. And then, um, do you think then it was Via Ragosa who uh, was really the linchpin who didn't really come to the aid of the Latino communities? He, given all of the complex uh, spider web of the complex story, I guess what I'm asking: did he, did he actually have the power to make it happen as the mayor of the city? And and you, and what you're saying is that he punted. And he didn't do that. But in fact, uh, since he's up for re-election, I'd like to know, <laughs> did he really have the key to solve this problem? And uh, being the uh, politician, he uh, walked away from it. Thank you. I think we have to blame all the politicians. And, and there, was, there were several things that, that we were talked about. One of them was the, the, there was always the option to use eminent domain. But they all shied away from that. And then Viragosa had enough support in the, um, in the council to basically override Jam Perry. So for me, yes, he failed. And also Jam Perry failed. She failed basically because, uh, as you saw from what Juanita Tate said, he's like, you know, we are a, a majority minority in the, in the community. We have basically no political power, but we have... All the numbers were, you know, 90% of the community, but we have no political power, right? And so for me, it's absolutely, it was a failure on all the politicians because, you know, now they're, you know, now what are the, what are the lingo that they're speaking? They're all saying everything we were saying three years ago, right? Yeah. We were in the periphery, and we were basically moving that message. Now, the question to the issue of the cornfields, the cornfields, there's a very fascinating story about, the farm, and it's not just the farm, the land on 41st and Alameda. There were actually 22 different sites that were put together under Reardon and Rocky Delgadillo. Rocky Delgadillo was the economics development for um, Reardon, and he happens to be a lawyer. So he came up with some extremely very creative processes for extracting public land 
and giving them very cheaply to developers and then bringing in you know, all of these kinds of hedge funds and investment corporations to basically invest. And they came up with these kinds of portfolios that were called double bottom line uh, portfolios where they would do development in these communities. They would create partnerships with like Juanita Tate groups where they were 501c3s. And a lot of these government Section 108 loans had to have um, a, a, a public uh, or a 501c3 component to them, and this is how this game is played. So what happened is we went through a process where humongous amounts of pieces of land were basically uh, taken from the public domain, that's all of you guys here, and given to developers. That, the cornfields was one, Taylor Yard was another site, the UPS old site, the train station was, so there's a whole bunch of these sites that were all basically done in the same manner. That the, the cornfields was one of the same places that was actually fought in the same way that we did. And that got bought up by the state. The cornfields was a project that Lauren came up with. And half of the, they have enough money to do half the park and the other park. They wouldn't, they wouldn't even let, they wouldn't even entertain the idea of, of making it into a community garden. And right now, They've been kind of playing a little bit with it. You can see there's some kind of some kind of gardening happening there, and I'm hoping that it will get converted into a community garden there because there isn't the money to invest in watering, you know, 14 acres or 20 acres that's on that side of just grass. You know, that's been our argument all along. So hopefully that answers your the question in a very thorough. <laughs> political analysis there. <laughs> Maybe Dean can add some. No, 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 I'm good. You got it. Hi. Uh, my name is Lenny Eisenberg, and I had a question about eminent domain. You kind of touched on it. And it seems to me that in uh, the sequel to your movie, The Son of the Garden, uh -huh. uh, in The Son <laughs> of the Garden. You're going to make that one, I hope? Well, no, I think you, but there's, there would be a certain <laughs> irony that if uh, this gentleman who refused to take $16 million when uh, the fair market value was established for the public use of this property, it turned out to be significantly less. Mm. Because a court of law will look at what the city sold it to him for, and uh, property value we know because of the economic situations going down all the way around Los Angeles, sure. and he might wind up with actually less. Is anybody pushing for eminent domain, either by uh, doing it through referendum, bringing it before the voters, because it seems obvious, I mean, what I was watching when I was watching this film was an incredibly corrupt city government. Sadly the case, yes. Uh, we, we were hoping, Tez, and I'll let you finish about uh, going after the, the eminent domain. It would have been such a beautiful irony for this story to be bookended by eminent domain. Normally, eminent domain is used in the way that Juanita Tate fought it, where it's to put a trash incinerator into a poor environment. Obviously, if we saw a trash incinerator trying to be put in right here, you know, if we try to ch turn Cape Mandolini's into a trash incinerator, I think they might be able to stop that, maybe. Um, and, uh, and at the same time, the, you know, the, one of the most famous eminent domain cases, most of, I would imagine many of you know, is, is, is Chavez Ravine becoming Dodger Stadium. So it would have been so beautiful if this could have been, come full circle and they took the land back from Mr. Horowitz in eminent domain. And we try, I know there was, the, it was, I never captured any of it, I know there were conversations about it. Is there anything you want to add to trying to make that happen, Tessa? I, I think that we are still committed to saving the farm. And we, we fought Horowitz on the whole issue of putting the, uh, the distribution warehouse. And we are basically, you know, we're in the, pro we're 
actively boycotting Forever 21. We basically have targeted them, and they're, they're very nervous, especially in this economy. And we're waiting for Horowitz to submit uh, the paperwork for his uh, to do the EIR because we basically have the NRDC behind us. We have the Center for Biological Diversity. We have Dr. Pena from the University of Washington. We have all these experts, and we have all of these studies that have been done on diesel particulate matter in the last 10 years. And you know we're ready for the battle. I mean, I think that <laughs> we can create we can create the position to to be able to take the land and put it back to a community farm. It's not an impossible situation. The corn fields was already into the development of a warehouse. Basically, they were able to come in at the last minute and cut a deal and then basically put it, you know, create the park that exists there now. So it's not an impossible situation. And we, are, we continue to be fully committed to saving that land on 41st and Alameda, and they know it too. They here, here. know that we can mobilize. <laughs> Let's see. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in with one follow-up there. What's the uh, situation with Dan Stormer's uh, lawsuit? Is there still something going on there? Um, it's mentioned in the film, but I don't know yeah. like what the follow-up. I think that um, the the last thing is uh, we basically uh, are still filing. The last motion that we have it has gone up to the uh, the state supreme court, and we're waiting to hear whether they're gonna hear it. Uh, Dan Stormer, who is one of the top 100. Uh, civil rights lawyer basically you know he he got the same experience that scott got he goes wow i can't believe this is happening to me i mean like this never happens to me i, go, and I always tell scott and <laughs> tell that story do you feel like a mexican yet <laughs> <laughs> that's a t-shirt on the back of the garden t-shirt it'll be do you feel like a mexican yet um sorry uh, <laughs> and the truth is, is that there is a double standard. There's a double standard in, in, in the legal system, and, and there's a double standard in expectations. And I think you can clearly see it. I mean, I have a great example of this with the judge who came out on here where she uh, was meeting with the two parties, and on, on one instance, she took Mr. Horowitz and, her, and his lawyer, Mr. Borenstein, and went inside and you know, this, had this great discussion. Then she came out. Sorry. That's fine. She, uh, she came out later and she said, oh, I, I'm going to meet just with you, Mr. Stormer. And we got up and we we're like, oh, man, this is like one of those moments where like I can't say anything or I'll ruin this lawsuit. <laughs> but it definitely I felt it. Yeah. So you in other words, you all weren't invited to go with him to the chambers. Right. right, right. We weren't good enough. Right. We wouldn't understand the law. Uh, Randy Ross. Uh, that was an excellent documentary. Uh, I have a number of questions, but I'm just going to focus on. Can I do two? Let's just. <laughs> uh, oh, one, one question is just goes back to concerned citizens in South Central Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. um, back in the early 80s, uh, I was one of the founding members of that organization, and the day was the first president. Actually, Juanita Tate was, was not really involved in the Lancer case that much. I mean, actually, <laughs> there are other people, and I was just wondering what the other concerned citizens there's Robin Cannon and the Cannons and. I think Robin was the chair of the board. But I wonder how they felt about all that and the, and the use of that land. The second thing is the, the $5 million. That's a very interesting. I was trying to think. I said, if, if, uh, if my land was taken away from me, you know, and the city gave me $5 million for it, and then the city elected not to use the land for the intended purpose, yeah. and I wanted it back, then how much should I have to pay for it? You know, and I'm not sure. I was just thinking I, I couldn't work my way through that. 
Sure. Uh, but there's just there's just something very interesting about that. You know, if you, if you take something on one hand, how much do I have to to pay to get it back? So I I wonder. I guess the question there is: Is there crookedness in the city, or what was the reason that they decided to sell it back to to Horowitz for only five million? Sure. Um, the the thank you for uh, for for for. Uh, making us aware of your position at uh, Concerned Citizens. And if I, I knew about, there were other people obviously involved in Concerned Citizens, but maybe, uh, forgive me if I failed at possibly the, the, the squeaky wheel getting the grease, forgive me for not having a better, uh, a better analogy for it, but Juanita Tate was the one that everybody told me was the, the, the leader of Concerned Citizens, and she was the one that wanted to talk, talk to me. So I did not get to speak to, the, to, to those other people, and uh, I'm sorry if we, we missed something there. Everybody involved in it, including Jan Perry, said that she was the one that uh, was so involved in stopping the trash incinerator. Obviously, more people involved. It wasn't a one-person show. But um, to, to your second question about the, the $5 million, I'm only speaking from, from my understanding of it, well, a combination of my understanding of the, the legalities of it, but also just what makes sense to me logically. If you're paid fair market value for it in, in, on, in, on one year and you want to get it back in another year, shouldn't you pay fair market, shouldn't you have to buy it back for fair market value? And we can talk about you know, some sort of deduction for fees that you had to you know, encounter you know, going through that. That seems fair, but obviously it wasn't, $11 million that should have been the difference there. Um, but more importantly, and I think it's the place that this, this story fails on so many levels, and it goes to what I was saying before about M Mr. Obama speaking to us like adults, is why wasn't everything just on the table? Just on the table. That's all. Why don't we come, I mean, a, a friend introduced me, seeing a rough cut of the film, introduced me to the old term, the perfect is the enemy of the good. And just because everything isn't perfect, doesn't line up exactly right, you know, things couldn't work out. Why couldn't have the, we found a way to make this, if it was the right thing to do, to make this a soccer field and a community garden? If we needed business there, couldn't we have found a way to have business there and it be a community garden? Why couldn't have we found another place for Mr. Horowitz to get land? Somebody just the other day, Tesla, I didn't tell you this, suggested that why, why, wasn't, why wasn't there ever brought up that the, the warehouse was built on Juanita Tate's other dirt soccer field because it was never turned into a soccer field. Sorry, just a side, just a side <laughs> note. But... Um, that the, I I can't tell you why they sold it to him for five million any more than the film that the film tells us. I mean, Mr. Horowitz I think tells us most clearly is that he was trying to get his he didn't even attempt to start getting his land back until ten years after it was purchased from him in eminent domain and eight years after the fact that it was stopped as a trash incinerator. So he had plenty of time to say, hey, you didn't use it for those means. And then when he was suing the city, he was losing, as it says in the film, three times over. And then all of a sudden it went to city council. City council tells us that it was a legal issue. Mr. Horowitz tells us that it's a city council issue, that he was told by his lawyers to basically deal with, with Juanita Tate and Jan Perry on this because it would have made it go more easily. And he tells the story of you know, Juanita Tate saying basically the classic you know, uh, line of, you know, there's two ways we can go about this, an easy way and a hard way. And he thought the easy way was going to be with her. So I, that's the best that I can do to, to answer it. Tezza, did you want to add anything to that? I, I think that there's, there's a really heavy underlying issue here, and I, I think a clue really lies in the um, in when the city, when, when Reardon was short in funds, what he did is he, he sold the land from the city to the city, if that makes sense. He sold it from the city to the port, from the, the, the Department of Public Works to the port. And what 
there was there was something that they used to do a lot, which is and they still do it now. Now they do it with your trash fees and they do it with a cell phone tax. And what they were doing is basically you know plugging up the holes of the budget and they would go to a profit making center, which was the port, and pull money from the port to basically cover their ends. What I feel was happening with Borenstein being a very intelligent lawyer was that they the, the state had sued the city of LA under what's called the Thailand's um, uh, le um, legislation. Is that correct? You're starting to become a lawyer now. Uh, no, but I, I basically have to cover the facts. He's far, he's far too smart to be a lawyer. I'm too far too smart. <laughs> and what was happening there was that basically the state had caught on to Reardon's fact about trying to use the you know the LA port. And the, I'm sorry, the LA Harbor and the, the, the airport as funding mechanisms to plug in the holes for the budget. And there was actually a lawsuit, it was called the, the Nexus lawsuit, that forced a settlement between the, the city. Now, at this time, Rocky is no longer the economics development, he's actually the uh, city attorney. So he, in a sense, is trying to cover all the deals that he cut while he was the economics development. For Reardon, he's trying to cover them so that they won't unfold because once you find the thread, right, then this whole uh, scam that they did with all of the 21 sites begins to unravel. And so what I feel is that basically uh, Borenstein basically put the squeeze on, on, uh, on the port and also on Rocky Delgadillo, and that's really what forced the sale of the land, and it was basically a sweetheart deal to basically shut Horowitz up. Because I think somebody had found the thread that tied all of those. It was called the um, the Genesis LA project. That's the basis of that. Is that clear enough? Yeah, I know. It's, <laughs> and you can see why I may have thought of not quite including that other tangent in the film because it's it's very tricky, and we're going to try and get into some some of that in the in the DVD extras. But uh, one of the toughest things in telling this story was boiling it down to its essence because there were so many tangents it could make part your head part spin two off. Genesis LA. Yeah, exactly. So it's already got a name. Uh, my name is Angela Johnson Peters, and first of all, I want to thank you for the fabulous, fabulous documentary. Thank it's, you very it much. It was amazing. Um, so, question: uh, Who is it being distributed by? Um, Me. And what plans? Okay. <laughs> and then, do you have any plans to use the film as a teaching tool because it should be used in any college curriculum about social activism and politics? And so. Absolutely. Please recommend it to all schools, all of the, every school you all went to, <laughs> every person you know that went to school, please recommend it. Um, uh, th thank you very much. First of all, we are still looking for, uh, for distribution. And um, in this final month, I don't know if you guys knew, we, we're, we got nominated for Academy Award, which is crazy. <laughs> um, and if you guys do that internet thing, that blogosphere thing, you can go out there and say, why... This movie got got an Oscar nomination. It doesn't even have distribution. It's like, yeah, <laughs> I guess. Uh, so we're we're in we're in negotiations. We're going to get distribution. We're, we have uh, there's some deals on the table, and we're trying to get the be the best one. Uh, very much to your point about the education, we've had wonderful requests for um, for uh, education educational DVDs, and have had several universities already purchased them. Well, God, probably almost twenty universities already purchased them. And to see the diversity of what departments have requested it. It's been really an, a real honor. 
um, that it hasn't been like one area of the school, but many, many different areas. And that's, that's going to be great. And I'm going to actually maintain, I'm going to maintain the educational rights. And God forbid that might be the place we, we could actually break even on this four-year epic. So uh, thank you very much, though. Hi, uh, my name is Rob Wilson. Uh, my no, question is no for pressure, the Rob. Last yeah. question. <laughs> make good. My question is actually uh, for the filmmaker. Uh, I was presuming that your operation is somewhat small during the shooting process. No, it's epic. And, and I was actually kind of curious uh, about what advantages and disadvantages, and what kind of access you got, and what kind of access you feel like you didn't get. Sure. Because you were probably like just a run and gun, one man with a camera running around kind of. Just, w I was wondering if you would talk about that, and I have a quick follow-up for Tezo also, is when are you running to replace Jan Perry? Yes! <laughs> here, here! Thank you, good night. <laughs> that's a good way to end, I like that one, Tezo. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a really good question. Um, the, uh, why, it looks like it was a one-man crew? You can tell the steady cam and the crane. What are you trying to say? What are you trying to say, Rob? <laughs> God. Worked hard on that look, Rob. Um, yes, many a day, it was me and a camera and a microphone on top of the camera following poor Tezo around, poking it in his face. Uh, sometimes at other days, sometimes Dominique would be there with me. Sometimes I was smart enough to have one of the other co-producers, Vivian Nassif, there to translate the Spanish. That's an idea. And uh, several scenes were shot without necessarily the perfect knowledge of what was being said. The, the Kucinich scene was one of my favorites where I, I knew what was kind of going on, but I sure didn't know until I got in the editing room exactly how good it was that what was going on. <laughs> so um, so I, really like, I really like a small crew. I like the intimacy of, uh, I, it was a, I don't know if you guys know cameras, it was a PD-100, it's a very small camera, a wonderful microphone on top, audio technical microphone, so we, I feel very proud of the sound that we got, I feel very proud of the image. I hope to shoot HD next time, but didn't have the money, I had the camera, that's, you know, you gotta run with what you have. Um, but yeah, I like, I like the unassuming quality of that, I love the, the, the fact that I can blend in a little bit more and become a little bit more invisible, but you know, it takes time, I mean, Tez and I could have a whole other Q&A about, um, about, about access and about, you know, trust. And he still thinks I work for the CIA, so, <laughs> you know. And he might be right, I don't know, maybe. I haven't figured out. The, they, haven't heard, they haven't hit the chip yet where it clicks in. And I, I have been working for the CIA. Um, but uh, so I hope that, 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 that answers your question. And now let's get to Tezo. I think there's, run, a Tezo, there's, run. A, there's a really fascinating <laughs> thing about <laughs> people not knowing, like, for example, there were some really good moments that people were able to talk knowing that Scott didn't know Spanish. So, you know, we were able to kind of have our conversation. <laughs> we knew Scott was not going to be able to understand. So it was an interesting um, management of, of language from both sides, language acting as a natural barrier in, in, in sometimes and then as a, as a good thing and sometimes as a bad thing. And it was a, for me, it was a very fascinating study in, in that element because when the encampment came, there were a lot of people with a multiplicity of, of agendas and it was very hard for them to kind of get into where the farmers were because just, just like, hey, we don't trust you. We don't even know. You don't even understand this. And it was fascinating, you know, to... It was a kind of an interesting membrane that existed even with the language barrier both ways, right? For them wanting to understand what the people and then the other way around 
the farmers basically feeling kind of, you know, it was it felt like it was a rare moment where language was almost a kind of like a force field, you know? It's like, okay, <laughs> you guys can't take us over because you don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's this little thing called editing and translating in the yeah. editing process that somehow we got some of those words back. But, but it, I mean, that, that really is, it's a kind of almost uninhibited moment where there were a lot of things that were happening uh, I was remembering like the one with the guy showing up and I was just so tired of people complaining and I was, you know, working with my machete and it was just, I just didn't think about it. Yeah. And I, I had this machete in my hand, you know? <laughs> you know so we're trying to save. These are kind of rare moments where we're language. We're trying to save this you know. effing place. Yes. You put it on the line there. <laughs> uh, well, thank you to, uh, to all of you. Do we have to stop? We can keep talking. No? No, Sogala would like to thank you for joining us <laughs> no that was um, a no no if you, if you have anything you. else to say please uh, I do have something to say as an independent filmmaker guess what I have in my bag DVDs for sale so I'll be in the back <laughs> if anybody wants one but uh, thank you guys I hope you signed up Thank you to Zocalo. Please, and Tezo, yeah, please. Yeah. And, and I want to thank a couple of people here uh, that were in the encampment. Terrence. Yay. Wave your hand. Stand up. Anybody that was at the garden? Come on. Alma. Alma. Anybody else in the encampment? So these people actually w were arrested uh, arrested along with Daryl Hannah. Okay? So. So they've made the ultimate sacrifice. And sorry, last thing, and if my publicist will smack me if I don't ask this. Uh, Voting ends on the 17th, so anybody you know, feel free to just call people you don't even know, but you think they might be in the Academy, just call them up. <laughs> they love that stuff. Just call them up. I'm kidding. Ask them to see all five films. They're wonderful films. They're playing the rest of the week at Academy screenings, and it's worth your time. So thank you so much.